The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, tell the Israelites, you may eat all kinds of animals. You may eat any animal with divided hooves and that chews the cud. But among the ones that chew the cud or have divided hooves, you are not to eat these. Camels, though they chew the cud, do not have divided hooves. They are unclean for you. Hyraxes, though they chew the cud, do not have hooves. They are unclean for you. Hares, though they chew the cud, do not have hooves. They are unclean for you. Pigs, though they have divided hooves, do not chew the cud. They are unclean for you. Do not eat any of their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. For I am the Lord your God, so you must consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not defile yourselves by any swarming creature that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. So you must be holy because I am holy. This is the law concerning animals, birds, all living creatures that move in the water, and all creatures that swarm on the ground, in order to distinguish between the clean and the unclean, between the animals that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, even as this renewal team work has been going on, we, we know with a great deal of confidence that as a church, we highly value the scriptures that were given to us, that were passed down through the generations that we might find in them faithful, true, trustworthy teaching about you, about the world, about ourselves. And Lord, today as we tackle this passage in Leviticus 11, I ask and I pray that you would guide my words and help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. Would you fill all of us as a church with a, uh, just a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit that we might live lives of devotion to you, finding our deepest satisfaction in you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, can we say thank you to the renewal team as well for all their hard work? So yeah, good to go. I can take that. When we started the book of Leviticus, uh, I know that most of you, you know, again, begging, clamoring, please, let's do Leviticus, uh, the first few chapters with all the sacrifices and all the priesthood stuff is one kind of difficult to understand, right? These rituals, these sacrifices, these practices seem a little bit off-center from our lives and the way that we live. And so a lot of times, people don't get past the first, you know, seven, eight, nine chapters of Leviticus. But see, what I knew was that in Leviticus 11 is where the real fun starts. Because in Leviticus 11, we start a section on food that goes into the body, children that come out of women's bodies, rashes that affect the skin of people's bodies, and then other Various discharges that come out of both men's and women's bodies. So uh, we're going to do the food laws today. We're going to do childbirth next week. Then we're going to pause and allow me and other pastors to catch our collective breaths. After we pause for a few weeks in the Psalms over July, we'll pick back up in August with rashes and skin diseases and bodily discharges. So just be thinking who you want to invite to church uh, between now and then. 
But knowing I was going to be teaching on the food laws in this sermon today, which I've entitled, Why Does God Care What I Eat? I started paying attention. I have one good friend, Rabbi Matt, who's been here actually to teach a few different times, and their family is Jewish, and having meals with them, or going to like various pastor's fellowships, and he'll ask, and they're serving the food, hey, is this kosher? And there's a certain type of food law that's followed by the Jewish people that comes from Leviticus 11. And again, for many of us, this type of, this way of living seems so foreign, it seems so strange. But then I started paying attention because as a pastor, one of the main things that I do is I meet with people. I meet with people for meals. I meet with people for coffee. I might meet with somebody, you know, after work, go get a a beer or an appetizer or something like that. And I started paying attention to the various food laws that you all live according to as well. Got together with someone a few weeks ago. We were texting, hey, let's meet up. Let's go after work. We'll go get a beer, go get some appetizers. And we meet up there and he goes, oh, I'm I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing alcohol right now. I'm taking a month off. Or back in January, dry January, or sober October, these phrases that people, I'm taking a break from alcohol. Meet up with somebody else. Oh, I can't eat any of this stuff. It's all, I'm doing, I'm doing Whole30 right now, and I can't eat anything that's on, anything on this entire restaurant's menu. Okay, right. Get together with another person. Oh, I can't eat anything. Here, I'm doing the tough 75 or some new thing I'd never heard of before. I'm still waiting for someone to say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I'm on that Atkins diet right now. Nobody said that to me in years. Getting together with some other guys the other night. We're watching a basketball game, and one guy sits down, oh, I can't eat any of this snacks. I'm intermittent fasting. My clock hasn't allowed me to eat yet. We live according to a lot of food laws in our modern society. There's a lot of different things that to other people uh, would seem strange. Keto. Gluten-free, vegan. <laughs> it's just the rules around our food, the, 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 the laws and the things that we draw, the lines that we put in place, all because food is pretty, pretty important, is it not? Food is one of the most fundamental things to living. Food is something that is required for human existence. Food laws in religion, therefore, are very common. Many different religions including veganism, have laws around food. Isn't it interesting that in the Bible, the very first commandment ever given to the human beings, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and what is that that commandment comes with a promise. Behold, I have given you every seed-bearing plant. It's yours for food. First commandment in the Bible talks about food. Second commandment in the Bible, you know what the second commandment in the Bible is? You shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. The first two commandments in the Bible are tied to food. And that's because this, friends, listen. Food is more than just food. Food is deeply connected to our spiritual selves. Mark Scarlatta, one of the scholars who's really been extremely helpful for this teaching in the book of Leviticus, he says this. He says, in the industrialized, developed world, we easily forget how central the act of eating is to life. We take it for granted that we can pop around the local shops and pick up something any time of day. Meat is prepared for us. Vegetables are pre-washed and sliced. Sandwiches are made and boxed for easy eating on the go. And we don't often consider where the food has come from or what's in it. Lengthy ingredient lists are often scrawled on packages in microscopic print along with a place of origin, which may have been a country thousands of miles away. We don't know how the food has been produced, how it has been transported, how it has been processed, and for the most part, we don't care. We've become so accustomed to knowing virtually nothing about food production that eating 
becomes a mindless physical act with the end goal of simply satisfying our appetites. God, however, intended food to be something more than just physical sustenance for our bodies. Isn't it interesting that all of these sacrificial offerings, these worship offerings to the Lord in Leviticus, all involve food? So as we get to the Levitical food laws, these kosher food laws, I simply want to ask and address four questions today. Four questions. The first one is this. What are, what are we even talking about? What are the Levitical food laws? Number two, what purpose did they serve? Number three, as Christians, how do they point to Jesus? And number four, what do I do with them today? Question number one. You guys ready? You guys hungry? <laughs> Uh, I'm about to possibly ruin some of y'all's Father's Day celebrations later when they pull out the bacon-wrapped jalapenos and the pulled pork shoulder. So you go home and sin with your family if you want, but I'm going to read Leviticus 11 here. Okay, so first of all, what are the food laws? First thing you need to know, it's just simply a list of animals that are allowed and disallowed. You heard it in our scripture reading. We read some of the land animals. There's fish, there's birds, there's, yes, bugs that are allowed and disallowed to be eaten. And you need to understand that this has more to do with ritual impurity than it does to do with moral impurity. And we're going to really spend some more time unpacking this in the weeks to come, but I just want to remind you that there are two kind of different things happening throughout the book of Leviticus. Morality is things that are just in and of themselves. They are just wrong. It is just wrong to murder. It is just wrong to commit adultery. It is just wrong to lie. Now, there is nothing inherently wrong with eating pork or eating camel or eating hyrax. There's nothing inherently wrong with those things in and of themselves, but they are commandments that the Lord gave for the people of Israel in a ritual sort of way to say this will be what distinguishes you. So again, we're going to get into that more. Ritual purity has more to do with the recognition that everything in life belongs to God. Moral purity is things, this is sin, right, wrong, But ritual purity is more like practice for those areas. A second thing that's important to know about the food laws is it's actually about touching them when they're dead. You're not allowed to make contact with the carcasses of these animals. And again, we heard that in our scripture reading, and it's multiple times in chapter 11. Do not touch these things when they are dead. Like in verse 24, these will make you unclean. Whoever touches their carcasses will be unclean until evening, and whoever carries any of their carcasses is to wash his clothes and will be unclean until evening. Now, the idea is you could still go to the the state fair and you could pet a pig, that's fine. Don't eat the flesh of the pig because presumably it's then dead. Don't touch the carcass. Don't eat its flesh. This is about death. The, the ritual purity laws all have to do something with death. And the third thing you should know about these food laws is that they reflect creation order. And this is really, really cool. There's a scholar named Mary Douglas who really dug deep on this. But the idea is, in Genesis chapter 1, the Lord said, let's make man in our image, and humanity is going to rule over, what does he say, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the the animals on the land, and those things that crawl upon the land. And as you read through the food laws in Leviticus 11, they reflect those same categories. How do we, how do we categorize animals in our modern scientific vernacular? What do we, we categorize animals? We have like, what? We have mammals. We have amphibians. We have rugby players. All sorts of types of animals, right? Like, 
just different categories of animals. That's not how they did it in the ancient world. In the ancient world, things were categorized according to where they lived. So for example, let's start in the water. In the water, Leviticus 11, verses 9 through 12. It says, you know, anything that has fins and scales... Good to go. If it's in the sea or if it's in a stream, that's fine. But this is to be abhorrent to you. Everything in the seas or streams that does not have fins and scales among all the swarming things and other living creatures in the water. So if it's got fins and it's got scales, you're good to go. Very easy. The Lord makes it easy for his people to remember. So can you eat a tuna? Yes. Can you eat a dolphin? No. They're really cute. Can you eat uh, a, a, a swordfish? Sure. Can you eat a lobster? No, they're horrendous. They look at them. They're sick. You, you people that like lobster, I'm going to, this is a hot take. People that like lobster like butter. That's what you like. (laughs) You don't like lobster. You like butter. You would just drink butter if you could, but that's socially unacceptable. It is unclean for you to do that. And so you take 50% lobster and 300% butter, and now you're happy about it, okay? This is the law in Leviticus 11. The things in the water, fish and scales, good to go. Anything else like lobsters and eels? Nope. What about animals in the sky? And <laughs> by the way, the animals in the sky includes bugs. So go read that. It's, it's great. Um, basically, the list of the birds are mostly just don't eat all these birds. And bats are included in there too. Again, these are ancient categories. I know that bats are technically mammals, uh, but they lived in the sky. And so the ancient world, they categorized them as things that lived in the sky. We know that uh, pigeons or turtle doves would be clean. We know that from the sacrifices. We know that vultures and ravens. Can I tell you a brief story? This is not my sermon notes. I got attacked by a crow a couple weeks ago. Uh, A crow came and landed in my yard to die. And I didn't notice it. And I was doing my lawn, and I was using the weed whacker, and I swung around, and I hit the crow with my weed whacker. And I know, and it's like, it, it like, ah! And it just like yelled at me, and it laid there, and it scared me so bad, I like threw the weed whacker down and ran into the house. <laughs> but here's the thing. When I went back, once I collected my wits and became a man again, I went outside, and there were two of its friends that had watched and I don't know if you know this about crows. They are vindictive. I kid you not. There was like, sw- every time I would go kind of even near, it was a swoop down and it hit my head one time. Pray for me. I'm living in like a Hitchcock nightmare here, okay? <laughs> unclean. Every kind of raven. Unclean. Don't eat them. Also, pretty much all bugs don't eat them, but grasshoppers or locusts, good to go. Tasty, yeah. Has anyone here ever eaten a locust, grasshopper? There was, uh, when I was in high school, someone had a lollipop and they had put a, a grasshopper into a lollipop and it was literally called a cricket licket. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> Keep going. The land animals, land animals. Anything that chews the cud uh, and has cloven hooves is good to go. So chewing the cud, you know, cows do that. There's other animals in here that are listed that kind of make that same chewing motion, even though we know scientifically they don't technically chew the cud. Rabbits. Did you know that rabbits are an unclean animal, according to Leviticus 11? Because they chew the cud, but they don't have a divided hoof. Uh, Camels. Hyraxes. Anyone know what a hyrax is? I had to look it up. Darn cute. Uh, Why would you want to eat them? Uh, But cows, good to go. Basically, if it has cloven hooves, all the way cloven, and chews the cud, 
go ahead and eat it. And then lastly is swarming, the swarming creatures, lizards, mice. Uh, Bible talks about those that have hundreds of feet, so like centipedes. No, don't eat them. Snakes, don't eat them. Also, if these swarming things crawl into your house, like let's say a lizard comes into your house, goes on your couch, falls over and dies, well, that's an unclean animal. It just touched your furniture. Your couch is now unclean, and it has to be washed with water, and it will remain unclean until that evening. Now, this is what the laws are, okay? And, and, and the, one of the things that comes up, and it actually came up just this morning in conversation with one of our members here, is why this and not that? Why, why are these divisions the way that they are? Why does God say that, um, yes, you can eat things with fins and scales, but not lobster or, or other things that are, you know, uh, normal in most uh, other cultures' cuisines? So here's some common explanations that come up. One of the common explanations is, well, it had to do with health, it had to do with healthy animals. There's some animals that are healthier to eat and other animals that are unhealthier to eat. Yeah, but there's nothing unhealthy about rabbit meat and, and there's nothing maybe particularly healthy about crickets. So the healthy, unhealthy thing, it really just doesn't hold up under scrutiny. I remember having a, a professor one time in seminary said, well, you know, it's because they didn't have refrigerators back then. I'm like, well, so they had salt and that's like the somehow the world made it for the last thousands and thousands of years before refrigerators were invented i think god knew what he was doing so the the healthy unhealthy thing doesn't really hold up when you start comparing well this animal and not that animal another common explanation has to do with its violent animals like ravens and crows uh there's a lot in there about like well maybe it's maybe it's violent animals that we're not to eat violent animals well but rabbits they're not violent they're everywhere, but they're not violent. Uh, or you could eat a piranha. That's clean. Those are really violent. I knew a girl in high school who had piranhas in her bedroom. We didn't hang out at her house, okay? Uh, so that one kind of breaks down. doesn't really work. A third, uh, a third example is it's just, well, some animals are just weird and don't eat them because they're weird. <laughs> For real. Like, like a fish makes sense, but what in the world is a lobster or an eel? Like, well, they're just weird. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's nothing particularly weird about... I mean, almost all animals are weird when you think about it. The, the distinctions, these, these explanations that come up, they don't really work when they're held up under scrutiny. It's not about health. It's not about, well, they're violent or they're not. Maybe there is some sort of underlying logic from the ancient world that we just don't have access to anymore. But even if the logic or the rationale is unclear... The purpose is very clear. And this is what the text invites us to consider. The, the, the text never gives us a reason. Well, why this? Why not? Why can't you eat clam chowder, but you can eat salmon chowder? The, the scripture doesn't give us a reason for that, but it does say this. It says three things. What purpose they serve? First of all, this is about identification as God's people. God says, I am the Lord your God. So you must consecrate yourself and be holy or be different because I am holy and I am different. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, so you must be holy because I am holy. Twice in a row, God says, I am giving you these food laws so that you will be different, set apart like me. God doesn't say, I'm giving you these food laws so that you can avoid, you know, salmonella. He says, I'm giving you these food laws because I want all the other nations of the world to know that you as a people group, you belong to me. Hear me on this. What if God gave these food laws just because? 
What if, what if there is no, maybe there is an underlying reason, but what if there isn't? What if God just simply said, I am choosing some easy to remember rules so that you will practice being my people? This is maybe one of the closest things to God just saying, like as a dad, because I said so. Any of you dads use that line, right? When you're younger, kid, well, why, why, why? And after the 318th why, you just say, because I said so. And you just kind of flex that fatherly authority a little bit. Maybe this is God just saying, I just want you to be my family. And in this family, we don't eat hyraxes. There's another reason, though, and, and if you'll allow me for a moment to go outside of Leviticus, there's another reason that's given in the book of Deuteronomy, and it's the reason for reliance upon God. Remember, this is, think about this. This is something that I hadn't thought of until just this last week as I was preparing to teach this, but remember, this law in Leviticus is given while the people of Israel are camped at Mount Sinai. What are they only eating right now? What is the only thing that they are eating as these laws are given? Manna and maybe quail at this point too. They're like, <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to get a hyrax if I could get one. I bet you they were thinking about it. They're like, man, I bet we had some mm, tasty camel meat back in Egypt, right? We mm, sure could go for some, you know, you know, eel roll, you know, sushi or whatever, ancient Middle Eastern sushi. I don't know. Like they're, they were probably daydreaming a lot about other foods. We know that one of the things that led them to grumble against the Lord and against Moses was this idea of, well, back in Egypt, we had onions. And back in Egypt, we had all this, we had meat and we had all these other things. And here they are in the desert living on just manna. And God is talking about a whole lot of different things that they could or couldn't eat. And in Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three, he says that the Moses is speaking to the people. He says that God humbled you by letting you go hungry, and then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had never seen before, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. These food laws were given to remind the people that food is not what's most important. Reliance upon God is what's most important. And then third, Zooming out even yet one more step, going back to what I said at the very beginning about the first commandments in the Bible having to do with food, that food is so important to human existence, I think it is fair to say that the food laws are given to the people of Israel so that they may practice mastery over their desires. The desire for food is, is one of the most basic of all human, human drives. We need, it's a genuine need. We need food. But even as we were talking about in our confession of need, show of hands, how many of you have ever had the desires of your flesh, the desires of your body, lead you into sin? Anyone? Everyone? Our desires, while often a good thing, when not surrendered to the Lord, can lead us into something sinful or even into something enslaving. And these ritual purity laws, they're practice. They're practice for the moral training that we need at the depths of our being. Jay Sklar says this. He says, as the Israelites made these distinctions between purity and impurity from a ritual perspective, they were constantly reminded that they had been set apart to be a people of purity from a moral perspective. 
So these food laws were given to set a group of people apart, say, you're going to be distinct. You're going to be holy like I'm holy. And you're going to learn to rely upon me. And you're going to practice mastering your desires so that you're not driven by your desires, but you are led by God himself. I don't know. All of a sudden, these food laws in Leviticus 11 don't seem so irrelevant, do they? Now, I want to ask this third question, because as followers of Jesus, you know that Jesus interacted with the food laws. You know that Jesus uh, talked about, you know, things, all things being made clean. You know, some of these different things. If you were here last year when we were going through the book of Acts, how do these food laws point to Jesus? How would Leviticus 11 help us as Christians think of our Savior? Well, a few things. First of all, the idea that Jesus fulfilled all of this perfectly, all of the Torah, he kept perfectly. Jesus never ate a hyrax. And if Jesus ever had a gecko come into their house and fall on the couch and die, Jesus would have fulfilled the Levitical prescriptions of washing it and being ritually impure until evening, until things could be made pure again. Jesus followed all of this perfectly. And I just, I say that to you because to think about what Jesus did so that he could be that perfect substitute for us on the cross, that it was a whole lifetime leading up to it, that if Jesus had sinned against these laws in Leviticus, he would no longer have been a perfect substitutionary sacrifice for us. We talk about Jesus, oh, he loved us and he died for us. Don't forget the first three plus decades of his life where he lived for us as well. Jesus fulfilled all of this perfectly, not only the letter of the law, but the heart behind it. Which leads me to the second point, which is that Jesus had full mastery over his desires. Friends, remember this, Jesus fully God, but Jesus also fully human, fully human. And that the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus experienced every single type of testing, every single type of temptation, every single type of thing externally, and yet was what? He was without sin. When Jesus was in the desert, when he was in the wilderness being tested for 40 days and for 40 nights, the, the, the devil came to him and tempted him. What's one of the things that the devil tempted him with? You can say it. You know it. Food. The, one of the most, like, no-duh verses in the entire Bible where it says, and after 40 days of not eating, Jesus was hungry. It's like, yeah, you're kidding, really. And the devil comes and said, if you're really the son of God, you could turn these rocks into bread. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus quote? That Deuteronomy verse I just said to you. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. That Jesus experienced every type of temptation. Jesus experienced every type of testing. And yet, he was without sin. But it's not just that he resisted the negative forces. No, it's actually Jesus took food and Jesus took meals and he turned them into his mission. How many times in the Gospels do we see Jesus sitting at a table with tax collectors, with sinners, with Pharisees, with rich people, with poor people, sharing a meal, breaking bread, drinking wine, and telling them the kingdom of God is here? How many people did Jesus welcome into his, his, his fold? How many people came to know the grace and the mercy of God who previously felt like outcasts because Jesus sat down and broke bread with them? Jesus didn't just eat because, well, it's something you got to do. Jesus used food as a way to further the mission of the kingdom of God. 
And at the end, Jesus gave his body and he gave his blood as food. It's one of the most shocking scenes in the Gospels in John chapter 6. It was shocking then. It's still shocking and kind of unnerving to hear it now when Jesus said these words in, in John chapter 6. He says, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. This is extremely unclean, by the way, what Jesus is saying here. It's intentionally provocative. It's intentionally shocking sounding. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him just as the living father sent me and I live because of the father so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the manna that your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus is saying, food, that food that you crave so deeply, that food when you get really hungry, when you get hangry, when you're you're super desirous of, of a meal, when you're super desirous of something delicious, both for your mouth and your stomach, Jesus is saying, in effect, all of that is just a metaphor for what you truly need spiritual life in me. You need to come to know, Jesus is saying, that the life that I offer you is more important than the life that food offers you. As delicious as some well-baked bread is, it's even sweeter to taste and see that the Lord is good. As satisfying as as a sacrificial offering of the meat of a lamb or the meat of of a cow would be, as, as, as satisfying as that would be to your stomach, it is more satisfying to know the love of God in heaven. This is what it's all about, that our deepest desires are truly satisfied in Jesus. That is where we find our ultimate and truest satisfaction And Jesus gave himself on the cross. His body was broken. His blood was shed to be spilled out for the forgiveness of our sins, for all the ways that our desires lead us into wrong behavior and into sinful behavior. He died and he took the penalty for that. But he rose again on the third day, conquering over death and proving that he truly was the source of all life. Bread is helpful for living. Jesus is essential for living. And so that's where we find our deepest desires are met, in Jesus. Food is just an object lesson. And later today, as you leave here and you go out to lunch or you gather for a Father's Day meal or later tonight as you're settling in for the evening, like, I want to make a bowl of popcorn or I want a snack, I hope and pray with every single bite that you take, with every single sip that you drink, you remember that your, your deepest desires are only satisfied in Jesus. So last question, what do I do today? What do I do with these food laws today? Pastor Aaron, are you saying I should stop eating clam chowder? We had um, our volunteers breakfast here before the service. Some of our wonderful uh, uh, volunteers, Wally Michelle, they brought some chicken biscuits and then they brought some uh, sausages and bacon. And it was, like, it was like two paths being set before us, like clean and unclean being set before us. And everyone who ate the bacon, we kicked them out of the church. They're gone. So... I'm just kidding. We didn't really, but it was kind of a fun little object lesson here. What do we do with this? What do we do with these food laws? And if it seems complicated, well, congratulations. The early church thought so as well. 
Because you have all these Jewish followers of Jesus, and now all of a sudden, Gentiles are joining the movement left and right, and they don't do these different. They don't keep the Sabbath day. They didn't practice circumcision on their boys. They didn't eat the same foods as the Jewish people did. And so they gathered this council together, and we recorded it. And it's recorded in Acts chapter 15. And James stands up, and he says these words. He says, listen, we've talked about it. We've deliberated. We've prayed. This is what the Holy Spirit has decided, that we're not going to place further burdens on the Gentile believers beyond these few things. Number one, don't eat food that's been offered to idols. This has to do with worship. This has to do with participation in a corrupt, idolatrous worship sort of thing. Don't eat that meat. Stay away from that. Number two, stay away from blood. Food that has the blood in it is mentioned in Leviticus, but actually food that has the blood in it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 9 with Noah. This is not a Levitical Israelite law. This is a humanity law. Don't eat blood. Don't eat blood. So this one is binding on all of us as followers of Jesus. Don't eat food that has blood in it. That is not, a, that is not the same thing as a rare steak, by the way. That's not blood. But blood sausage or blood pudding or other things like that, it's right here. Number three, uh, we add, you must abstain from eating th- anything that has been strangled. And that one seemed a little bit weird, but in the book of Leviticus, we know that the animal's throats were slit and the blood was drained out. And there is a lot of rabbinic literature, literature from the rabbis talking about the most humane ways to slaughter an animal, that even in the death of these animals, there was great care for the, the, the well-being of the animals who were giving their lives as a sacrificial substitute. So this is, this is about, honestly, this is about like cruelty to animals and care for the earth and the environment that God has made. And then Sexual immorality. You will do yourselves well if you keep yourselves from these things. So Gentile believers are not required to follow the Levitical food law. You may celebrate with a bowl of clam chowder later today. There is some discussion or debate about whether Jewish followers of Jesus may or may not be. There's different opinions. Uh, Paul says in Romans 14, he says, the apostle Paul says, I'm persuaded that nothing is actually unclean in and of itself. And so some Jewish followers of Jesus say that that's a a permission or an open-handedness to say, well, then Jewish followers of Jesus can also eat things that are not technically clean according to Leviticus 11. Others, like my friend Rabbi Matt, he says, no, this is still one of the ways that the people who are descended from Abraham are to mark themselves as distinct from the world. It's an open discussion. But for Gentile followers of Jesus, Acts 15 makes it pretty clear, as does Romans 14, as does Colossians 2, as does 1 Corinthians, I can't remember which chapter right now. There's a lot of places where we as Gentiles, who are, those of you who are Gentile followers of Jesus, you do not need to follow the Levitical food laws. But, 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 your eating still matters to God. You could eat cleanly according to all the rules of Leviticus 11, and you could still have a heart that does not honor God with your eating. And so I want to ask you three questions in conclusion, and we'll meditate on these questions as we prepare to go to the Lord's table where we eat and we drink of the body and the blood of Jesus. Three questions. Number one, write this down. Ask about it in your home, your community group. Ask your kids, for those of you who have kids. Does your eating demonstrate satisfaction in God? Does your eating demonstrate at the end of the day, that God is your ultimate satisfaction. I want to be very clear here. 
Um, there's a lot of different body types. There's a lot of different ways that you know, our bodies respond to different foods, everything from gluten intolerances to um, you know, carbs. and all. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in here. This is not about putting forward some sort of unrealistic magazine ideal of what, what our body should or shouldn't look like. But in your heart of hearts, you know when you're using food as a substitute for finding satisfaction in the Lord. Things like gluttony, overeating, overdrinking, over whatever. Or on the other side, starving yourself, not feeding, not feasting. Have you practiced fasting? Have you practiced feasting? Eating with intentionality. Are you satisfied in God? Second question I ask you of this, does your eating set you apart as belonging to God? Would there be, I mean, God specifically said that these Leviticus 11 food laws were given so that the surrounding nations would know that this people is set apart like he is set apart. Are we set apart with our eating? Care for the earth, care for your neighbor, care for your body. And then lastly, third question. Does your eating further the mission of God? Jesus turned his meals into mission. Jesus met and sat with people, and and as they ate, they talked about the kingdom of God. They talked about the work that he was doing. We're about to gather around bread and wine. We're about to partake in this small sample meal, but you're going to go have other meals all throughout the week. Does your eating further the mission of God? So why does God care what you eat? Because God made you, and he knows that only in him will you truly find your satisfaction So Gentiles, eat bacon, eat clam chowder. Heck, eat a Hyrax if you can find one. Feast on Jesus. Be satisfied in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us of our sinfulness when in our desires we we turn to food or drink or other things to satisfy our desires apart from you. Lord, would you forgive us? And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you gave your body as true food and you gave your blood as true drink that we might be forgiven of the ways that our desires lead us astray. Lord, would you help us to fast and would you help us to feast and to do it all with intentionality and with worship to you, the one who has given himself for us as true food and true drink. We pray this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus. And everybody said, amen.